This morning we are in 1 Peter chapter 4, 1 Peter chapter 4, and so I would invite you to turn in your copy of God's Word to that section. If you don't have a Bible, there's probably a blue Bible located underneath a seat around you, and you can grab it, it's there for you, and you can turn to page, I believe, 1016 in that Bible, and that'll bring you to our text this morning. If you're new with us, we're glad you're here this morning, and we are just making our way through uh, 1 Peter verse by verse, section by section. And this morning, we will begin to look at verses 7 through 11, 7 through 11. This will be a a multi-part message, as as many in the past have been. So we'll just cover a little bit today. We're going to be celebrating communion together today, so looking forward to that as well. There is an expression, and you probably know it, have heard it. Maybe you can finish it for me. Out of sight, out of mind. Out of sight, out of mind. And the idea, of course, is if you don't see something or even someone regularly, uh, you tend to forget about it, right? Now, think about (laughs) all the things... We have never seen, but only heard of or read about in the scriptures. Things that we as Christians have believed to be true, but we have not and do not yet see with our eyes. Yeah, a lot, quite a bit of our Christianity. Much of the Christian life is indeed out of sight. Yeah? It is a life of faith, beloved. Our Christian life begins in faith, right? We have not seen Jesus. We did not see the crucifixion. We did not see the resurrection. We did not see his ascension. We did not see him seated at the right hand of the Father. We do not see these things. We do not see our salvation accomplished. We believe those things. We believe those things. And believing those things, we are born again. We enter into the family of God. Our our Christian life begins with faith, and it continues in faith. We continue to believe things that we have yet not seen. One day, one day, our faith will be sight. But... Now, in the present, having not seen, we believe. And yet, we we know this expression, out of sight, out of mind. You know, the scriptures say, now faith, as we just kind of continue to think about this, faith, you know this passage probably, Hebrews 11, is the assurance of things hoped for. It is the conviction of things not seen, of not, not seen. We believe them, we are convinced of them, yet we have not seen them. Romans 8.24, Paul says, hope, our Christian hope, he says, hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? Right? We have a hope, but it is a hope that has not yet been realized in its fullest and complete sense. We have not seen it. 2 Corinthians 5, 7, Paul says, For we walk by faith and not by 
right? That's the Christian walk. It is a walk of faith. It begins in faith. It continues in faith. One writer commenting on 2 Corinthians 5, 7, or that idea of walking by faith, he says, as Christians, we are to focus on the unseen and not the seen. Not on present conditions, but future conditions. We are to live in light of the ultimate rather than immediate realities that are all around us, that we can see. We are to live in light of the ultimate, which is unseen. But one of our problems, as I said, is we tend to, we tend to focus or think primarily on what we see before us, yeah? Yeah? That's, that's what occupies us. What we don't see, we tend to forget, out of sight, out of mind. And, and what we see, that's what consumes us. And yet the Christian life is a life of faith, not of sight. So there's a tension there. There's a, uh, a potential danger if we don't consider these things closely. We focus on our present conditions. We forget about the unseen or future conditions. So In light of that, beloved, it is critical that we be reminded again and again and again of what is not presently seen, of what is ultimate, okay, rather than immediate. Because if we don't hear it repeatedly, and since we cannot see it, It may not be in our minds. It may fall away from us. That is the danger. And, beloved, if it's not in our minds, okay, if it's not in our minds, then it's not going to be in our hearts. And if it's not in our hearts, it won't have an impact on our lives. As it should, as God intends it to. So as you read the Scriptures, as you look at the Scriptures, and especially 1 Peter you see this consistent reminder to look, to look, to remember, to focus, not on now, not on the present, not on what is seen, but what is unseen, on what is ultimate, on what is future. And let that reality drive you, move you, empower you, encourage you, strengthen you. Keep you steady, keep you on task, keep you on mission. I mean, even this passage in Hebrews 10.23 that is, that is uh, often, this is all introduction, okay? We'll get there. Remember, it's a multi-parter, so. This passage in Hebrews 10, it is, it is, is regularly and often used to... to uh, to encourage people to go to church. <laughs> Sometimes beat them over the head, you know. You're supposed to be in church. But listen, listen. Listen to it in its entirety. Let me read it to you. It, it, it certainly is encouraging people, but why? why? Why gather together? Let us hold fast, Hebrews 10.23, the confession of our hope. Let us hold fast to the hope we profess, that hope that is not seen. It is unseen. Let us hold fast. The writer of Hebrews says, without wavering, don't back away, hold on to it, grasp it, treasure it, keep it in your mind and in your heart, don't let it slip away, okay? 
For he who promised is faithful. And then in verse 24, And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And then he says, And all the more as you see the day drawing near. Even in this passage right here, right? Pointing us right back. Come together to encourage one another, to strengthen one another. And in some sense, to strengthen them, to remind them of the day that's drawing near. To keep continually, repeatedly telling one another, reminding each other, helping us not forget ultimate destiny. What is ultimate? Because out of sight, out of sight, out of mind. And so we need to be reminded, we need to be encouraged, we need to be strengthened. With all that, now let's look at our text, okay? Because Peter, as he has done multiple times, again brings us back to ultimate realities. Ultimate realities. So important, beloved. So important. 1 Peter 4, verse 7. The end of all things is at hand. That's it right there. That is it right there. Okay? So that, the whole rest of the passage is going to fly out of that, that uh, whatever you might call that. I don't know where planes come from, but you know, that area. <laughs> yeah, I got lost, but it's going to fly out of there, okay? What would you call that? Where do? Yeah, thank you. That's the hangar right there. The end of all things is at hand. And now the planes are going to come flying out. You ready? Okay. Thank you, brother. Thank you. Um, Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. The end there, he just bust out, you know. He just can't help himself. Peter just bust out in praise, okay? And hopefully you will too as we uh, finish and complete this, this passage here over the next couple of weeks. But Uh, In working through this passage, what I first want to do is draw your attention to the immediate context of it, the immediate context of it. This section of chapter 4 that I just read, verses 7 through 11, it falls between chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, which we've covered, and chapter 4, verses 12 through 19, which takes us through the remainder of the chapter, which we'll cover in the near future. Now, Both of these sections speak about the suffering or persecution that Peter's first century readers were experiencing as a result of their Christian faith or as a result of living for Jesus Christ in the midst of an unbelieving and sinful world. In other words, this passage is sandwiched in between suffering, okay? Sandwiched in between suffering. And that 
that plays into our understanding of the passage, or at least it should, because that's the context. So we should note that it was in the context of this kind of suffering and difficulty that Peter made the statement, the end of all things is at hand. And then, in light of that truth, or that ultimate reality, which we'll get to, Peter then goes on to exhort his readers, or the various churches in Asia Minor, as we cover that in verse 1, he's speaking to various churches, he exhorted them to do certain things in light of that, the end of all things is at hand. That is, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers, keep loving one another earnestly, show hospitality to one another, and as good stewards of God's varied grace, faithfully use the gift each has received from God to serve one another, all to the glory of God, okay? So as I was telling you, one writer points out, one commentator points out, all those exhortations, all of them in this paragraph, as he puts it, draw an inference from the coming of the end. These exhortations are all shaped by the nearness of the end. And it is because the end of all things is at hand that believers should live in the following way, as it's listed there, concerning prayer and love and hospitality and service. Okay? And I'll point out something here in your translation, and I'm not sure, most translations do not include this. I'm not sure why. Another pastor was also just commenting on this, wasn't sure why, but they, they omit, the SV omits it too, they omit a connective particle in verse 7. So when you're reading along, you, it just says, it's almost like he just starts a new topic. The end of all things is near. But it would be better to translate it to have a, a but or a now there, because it's actually in the original Greek. It should read, now the end of all things is near, or but the end of all things is near. That is how the New King James translates the passage in verse 7. Uh, but, but the end of all things is at hand. See, so there's, there's a flow of thought, right? What was he just talking about? Suffering. Suffering for the sake of righteousness. He gets to verse 7. But the end of all things is near. Or the Holman Christian Standard Bible translates it, now the end of all things is near. So it's, there's a pause. It's not a whole new thought. It's not a whole new idea. It's not to be removed from its context, in context. Listen, I spoke to you about this suffering, but listen, the end of all things is near. Therefore, and then he goes on. Got the flow? It's important. So taking all things in consideration, what I, what I understand Peter to be saying is something like this, Okay taking it all in consideration, all of the context and the passage we're in. And right now, we're just, I'm giving you a big view of this passage. We'll get into the details. But I think he's saying something like this. Church, I know you are suffering. And they were. And that was their present conditions. That was what they were seeing with their eyes, right? Their suffering was uh, not unseen, but it was very much seen. So that is what was on their minds. And Peter was addressing it. And as we said before multiple times, not suffering in general, but suffering for the sake of Christ. Suffering because they were living out their Christianity. Suffering for making him known. 
So I know, still thinking, kind of what computer's communicating is as I see it. He might be saying, I know that life has been difficult for you as, as followers of Jesus Christ in this God-rejecting world. And by the way, it will continue to be, right? For one, arm yourselves with the intention to suffer. That was the, the section that we've covered prior to this one. Arm yourselves, have the same mindset of Christ. All those who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted. I know, but I want you to be encouraged, strengthened, and fortified for the task that is before you. What task? What task do the Christians have? What task do we have? Because it's the same task from the first century to this century. It's the same task. And Peter addressed it in 1 Peter 2.9. He's called us out of darkness and into light. He's rescued us, saved us for what purpose? That we might make him known, that we might proclaim his excellencies into this dark, fallen, Christ-rejecting world. We, our task is to help people come to know and believe in the Lord, Jesus Christ. It's our task, beloved. That's our task. So I want you to be encouraged. I want you to be strengthened. I want you to be fortified for the task that God has called you to. How? How? Here's a how. By recalling to mind that the end of all things is at hand. And in light of that ultimate and stimulating, motivating reality, making the listed spiritual duties, as he lays out, a priority in your lives and in your churches. That's how. That's how I see it. That's how I understand the text. That's how I will be explaining it to you. So I read it like this, if you will. When I'm reading through this section, I read it like this, as if Peter is saying, I know you are suffering. And that will likely get worse. But remember, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. I know you are suffering. I know. The Lord said this would happen. Now remember, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. I know you are suffering, but remember, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, show hospitality without grumbling. I know you are suffering. Now remember, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, faithfully serve one another with the gift that God has graciously given. That's how I read the text. One pastor commenting on this section, you know, he, he said that uh, he drew out of this that Peter wanted to make sure the churches to which he wrote would draw together as the persecution intensified. Okay, he knew they were suffering. He could see that that probably wasn't going to get better. It was only going to get worse. So he... He, he wrote this in part to, to, to make sure that they, they themselves as a unit stayed together, stayed focused, didn't 
didn't break apart, stayed on mission. And, and why might that be a concern of his? Well, trouble and difficulty in life can do one of two things. And you know this in your own probably lives. Trouble and difficulty can either drive a family apart. Yeah, unfortunately. Or it can drive it together, closer together. And so the last thing Peter wants to see happen is this family, the church of God, begin to be driven apart because of their suffering and, and all that, that that adds to their pressures and their stresses and their short, maybe shortened tempers and shortened patience. And so when we get to it, and he says, above all, love one another. And he says earnestly, like, we'll get to it. Just love, love one another. And he throws in, since love covers a multitude of sins, we see that that makes sense in the light of this context because the idea there is that, that our love would, would look the other way when we are offended, these minor offenses by our brothers and sisters in Christ, that we wouldn't make mountains out of molehills and begin attacking one another. It's hard enough. You've got attacks coming from outside. The last thing you need is attacks on the inside. No organization, no family like that will survive if they are not strong and together when they're being attacked from the outside. And so part of these exhortations he give, gives are in, the, in that context as he's thinking about that, and I agree. He doesn't want them to be, uh, he wants them to come together and be strong as they're, as they're being persecuted for the sake of Christ. So Peter says, remember the end of all things is at hand, and in light of this, that, do this, which will strengthen and fortify them for their task, that they might remain a cohesive unit, a, a strong unit, stay together, stay united on mission, making Christ known even in the face of the persecution and suffering they were experiencing. But that all begins with, now the end of all things is at hand. Okay? Which is why I titled the, the sermon that. Because you and I, also need to remember the end of all things is at hand. Now, before we look closer at the therefore do this, right, we need to consider exactly what Peter means when he says the end of all things is at hand. The end of all things is at hand. I don't know what you think about when you, when you, when you hear that. Don't say it out loud. Um, but on the surface... Because you might have a variety of ideas of what Peter means when he says, hey, the end of all things is at hand. And it is based on that that he, he lays out these exhortations to the suffering church. But on the surface, if you just heard that, if, if it wasn't made in this context or I just said it, or just rip it out there, or you hear someone say, the end of all things is at hand, what might you think if you just heard it outside of the Bible? You can talk now. Now you can talk end of it's the end of the world as we know it and i feel fine that's stupid i'm just saying right now that whole song is ridiculous but listen um i mean if he knew christ he could feel fine about it but uh anyway drop that from just scratch that from the recording and everything else on the sir okay so yeah you would think doomsday in fact there is a uh you may not know this but there's a doomsday clock 
It's been running since 1947. I know you'll go and Google it. Don't Google it now. Uh, wait till after the message is done. But a group of scientists and thinkers and stuff have uh, developed this clock. And basically, midnight is the end of the world. And so they have the, the uh, hour, based on how close it is to midnight, that's how close we are to doomsday. Um, in 1953, we were at two minutes to midnight, two minutes to midnight, and that, if you don't recall, is after uh, the United States and the Soviet Union both tested hydrogen bombs, and so that you know, kicked off the nuclear arms race. So it remained at two minutes to midnight for another seven years. Uh, in 1991, it was 17 minutes away from midnight. And that was in part because the Cold War was officially over and there was a reduction, a strategic arms reduction in nuclear weapons. There's a focus here on, you know, what could destroy humanity and the world, nuclear weapons. So they attach a lot of it to based on how well we are doing with uh, or how close we're coming to using those or if we're reducing them, so on and so forth. It's fluctuated since then, but in uh, 2015 and 2016, it was back to three minutes to midnight. And in 2017, they moved it to two and a half minutes to midnight. Two and a half minutes. And this is, uh, uh, this is what they say. The probability of global catastrophe is very high. <laughs> I don't know if they did that because Trump, Trump got elected. I'm not sure. I don't know. I'm just saying, the probability of global catastrophe is very high, and the actions needed to reduce the risk of disaster must be taken very soon. In 2017, we find the danger to be even greater, the need for action more urgent. It is two and a half minutes to midnight. The clock is ticking. Global danger looms. Okay, you know, wise public officials should act immediately, guiding humanity away from the brink if they do not. Wise citizens must step forward and lead the way. All right. Um, I could say a lot about that. Uh, I was telling my wife this morning, they don't know that simple song, you know? He's got the whole world in his hands. He's got the whole world in his hands. And then I would say, because I didn't know the words, he's got the mamas and the babies in his hands. She's like, it does not say that. So she looked it up. He's got the little bitty babies in his hands. Yeah, so anyway, just basic theology. Come on. God is sovereign. He controls the world, and he will bring the world to an end when and according to his plan. So, fooey on your dumb clock, all right? But just, just the, it is awesome being a Christian. It really is because of the peace, if you're thinking rightly. If it hasn't left your mind because it's out of sight, if you're thinking rightly. But I said all that to say this, Peter's statement should not be understood in that way. Peter's statement is not, we are on the brink of disaster. Therefore, pray, <laughs> love, be hospitable and serve. He's not saying that. He's not saying don't worry, guys, we're on the brink of disaster. He's not, that is not the end of all things is at hand, okay? So what does it mean? Let me also point this out. Peter does not say the end of all things will happen someday. He does not say that. This is important for you to understand. 
There is, there is a sense of urgency that comes from the statement. There is an imminency, a, a hanging over. It's, well, let me just explain. He says they're at hand. When we say something is at hand, maybe you don't use that phrase, but when you say something is at hand, it generally means that it is close. It is close, either in time or in space. Okay? Close at hand, it's physically close at hand, or its timing is close. You know, the holidays are close at hand. They are not, but if I said Christmas is close at hand, I said that in November, you'd all understand, or October, right? Close. Uh, the ESV, this translation, and the New King James both use at hand uh, to translate the underlying Greek word, but many other translations use the word near. M- many of them do, most do, near. Both are acceptable ways to translate the passage. But either way, the idea is that the end of all things is close. Okay? Close. Close how? Close how? Uh, Peter wrote this letter almost 2,000 years ago. Yeah? Yeah. So how are we to understand this? Was he mistaken? No. He was not mistaken. The fact that the end of all things is at hand was true in Peter's day and remains just as true in our day and it should impact our lives in the same way Peter intended it to impact those he originally wrote it to. Okay? Let me explain, and we're just going to, we're not even going to get to the whole prayer thing. We're just going to finish up with what is the understanding of the end of all things is at hand. The Greek word translated end here and here, the end of all things is at hand, should not be taken to mean termination, termination or cessation. Like, all things, like, like you would think if it was the end of the world, destruction, everything comes to a screeching halt because there's nothing left. It should not be understood that, stood that way. Rather, That word could be understood and should be understood in this way, the end, as the attainment of a goal or fulfillment or, a big word, fancy, consummation, consummation. Uh, That word, consummation, simply means the point at which something is brought to completion, brought to completion, consummation. And in fact, one translation of the Bible, instead of using the word end, uses the word, uh, well, culmination. It uses the word culmination, which is the same idea of consummation, being, being brought or fulfilled or reaching its intended goal. And that's the NET, for the culmination of all things is near. It's all being brought together into its finale, into its completion. That is how you should understand the word end. The end of all things is near. Here's a helpful uh, note from a Bible scholar concerning understanding that phrase. He says this, 
the end of all things is at hand means, listen, that all the major events in God's plan of redemption have occurred. And now all things are ready for Christ to return and rule. Remember that. All things are ready for Christ to return and rule. Rather than thinking of world history in terms of earthly kings and kingdoms, Peter thinks in terms of redemptive history. Redemptive history, the history of redemption, God's plan of salvation and glory. From that perspective, all the previous acts in the drama, if you will, of redemption have been completed. Creation, the creation of man, the world, the fall of man, the calling of Abraham, the exodus from Egypt, the kingdom of Israel, the exile in Babylon, and the return, the birth of the Messiah promised to the nation of Israel, Christ, his life, his death, and his resurrection, and of course, ascension into heaven. And then, as he promised, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit to do what? To establish the church, Pentecost. The great last act, the church age, which is the age you and I are living in, and so was Peter and his readers, has been continuing in this case, in this context, when Peter wrote the letter, for about 30 years. Okay? 30 years now. Thus... The curtain could fall at any time. It is the last act, ushering in the return of Christ and the end of the age. All things are ready. The end of all things. The goal to which all these events have been leading, that would be a good way to understand it, is at hand. Is at hand. Where has history been headed And you have to think redemptive history. Ultimately, it is the great rule and reign of the king. The king over his kingdom. Filled with all those he has saved in history. It is ultimately, the goal is the glory of the king. And the fulfillment of of that great glory and that great kingdom is at hand. It's at hand. And I'm going to not talk about this other stuff, and I want to say more to you. But I can't because of time. But I want you to don't miss a Sunday. Don't miss a Sunday. I want you to come back. I'm going to say just a few more things, but listen. I want to talk to you about even how the prophets got a little confused about the sequence of events, but I can't say any more because then I'll keep talking about it, but I want to explain that to you. It's important, but what you, I want you to walk away with right now is we are, we are in the church age. This is the age of the church. God is calling from every tongue and tribe and nation people unto himself. He is saving them. He is redeeming them for the coming kingdom and the coming king who will bring that kingdom to this earth, kingdom of righteousness and mercy and justice. We're right there 
on the edge, if you will. I was talking to someone and I said, maybe I will title this message, The Edge of Glory. And he said, do not do that because Lady Gaga has a song of the same title. So I said, okay, and I did not title it that, but we, if you will, are living on the edge of God's glory of Christ's rule and reign manifested on this earth. We're right there on the edge. It's as if, it's as if here he is right here. He's right here, and we are here in time. He's right next to us. It's that kind of closeness at any moment, at any stage here. There's nothing preventing it. He steps in. He steps in and initiates the consummation of all things. And that, as we understand it, will begin with the rapture of the church, which could happen at any moment. Any moment. So much I want to say to you. The curtain could fall at any time, beloved. So let me just say real quick, Thomas, and Thomas is going to come up. I have to be done. And Thomas has some words to say about this meal that we celebrate until he comes. Reminded again, even in the meal, I hope I didn't take anything from you, but even in the meal, reminded of what is unseen. But think with me for a second. Who enters in? Who enters into this glorious kingdom? All of history is moving this way. We are right now at the final act. It's about to break forth. But who enters into that kingdom? Who? The saved, the redeemed. Huh? And I wanted to talk to you about it, but you have to come back. And he talks about prayer. Think with me for a moment. Let that impact your prayers. Be self-controlled and sober-minded in regard to your prayers in light of the fact that it can break in at any moment. The kingdom will come. And who enters into that kingdom? Only the saved of God. Only the redeemed. So pray, beloved. Pray. Pray that the gospel will go forth with power. Pray that God will call men and women in darkness out of that darkness and into his marvelous light. Pray that God would redeem one more because the kingdom is about to break forth and only those who have been redeemed through the blood of Christ will enter into that glorious kingdom and share in the glory of the almighty Son of God, Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. You see? How that changes or how that should impact your prayer life? <sighs> Certainly adds to some weight to it, some gravitas. Anyway, I have so much to say to you, but thank you for coming. And now you come back. There's so much more we got to deal with here. But the end of all things is a hand, beloved. It's not seen, so it's easily forgotten. We need to keep recalling that. And in recalling that, it will impact how we live in this present world. Come forth, my brother, and lead us well in this great celebratory meal of our Lord and Savior.